Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're trying to give practical advice about writing Call of Cthulhu scenarios using our own work to provide examples. But before all that, what's been going on, Matt? You've been to a convention. Yes, I come back and after 18 hours of sleep, I finally feel like a human being again. That's, <laughs> that's probably more than you got in the entire convention, isn't it? Uh, yeah, hang on a minute. I've got seven... <laughs> Seven times two. Yeah, it probably actually is more than what I got over the course of the whole of that week. <laughs> Amanda, some maths on radio. <laughs> so Rain. It was at the uh, not at all humorously named Sandy Balls. <laughs> yes, yes, it was. Right. This is the venue location, Sandy yes. Balls. Yes, it's on the north- northwest okay. corner of the New Forest. You know, if you wanted to do a carry-on type scenario and you wanted to have a beloved children's entertainer or something like that with a funny name, you'd call him Sandy Balls, wouldn't you? Hmm. Yep, yes, I probably would. <laughs> and how was your show, Matt? How was, the, how was the con? I did manage to make myself a new record and why Steve Ellis was promptly saying that I was a madman through most of the convention. That I turned up, having finally got my key, within five minutes turning up. My players my first game were then there, helping me grab stuff in from the car, and then sat down and ran game within less than two or three minutes of getting through the front door. My crowning moment of out-of-game efforts was turning up at the local Tesco at about quarter to four in the morning and making some guys just die inside when he saw that I had a whole trolley full of goods to take back to the lodge. <laughs> <laughs> Matt knows how to live. <laughs> but in amongst all this, there was some gaming as well, wasn't I, there? I ran 11 games and played four. Four! The most I've played at a UK convention at any one single event in about the last ten years. Four games! Wait a minute, so that's 15 games you played? Yeah, in, 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 running, and, running and playing 15 in total. From, in how many days? Tuesday night through until Sunday afternoon. That's going some. Yep, and it looks like there may be even more next year. At some stage, it's not worth you ever going home again, is it? <laughs> you just move down to Sandy Balls and that's it. That, that is your home now. I can see worse fates befalling me. But I got, got to play a little Pulp Cthulhu. Uh, so it's our friend Jonathan Powell running that for us. The disintegrator from the uh, Pulp Cthulhu collection. Marvellous. Ah. Yeah. Got to play a session of the upcoming Princess Bride RPG that was run by John Gathercole. Mm-hmm. More quotes from the film that you can shake a stick at. Indeed, it was uh, foreshadowing a certain section coming up. It was quite inconceivable that that many quotes could come up in one go. We had Warfrup. was run by Ian Goulding on the, I think, the Thursday night. Yeah, that, um, he did something that's a bit rare for me. He, he gave me a real em- emotional punch to the gut, that man. And I, I'll, have to, I'll have to get him back at another convention now. <laughs> and then uh, played, probably played, for the first time since Scott ran it, Cult. Ah. So, yeah, Steve Ellis ran a, ran a session for oh, us. Oh, yes. Marvellous. Yeah, did that go well? Oh, really, really well. Uh, we had Todd Furler from Across the Pond join us with a few friends, like Skylar, who came along to IndieCon the couple of years before that, and Lisa and Andrew, friends of theirs that came across from the, from the East Coast. Fab. And you got yeah. to run your upcoming Call of Cthulhu scenario based on the sequel to The Call of Cthulhu, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, ran that twice. Uh, they had a Cthulhu tournament that was run at the event. Yeah. Um, so that was run as the table for the finalists. And also for a game that we ran on the Saturday night for the first proper playtest of it. And yeah, it went down pretty well. I was surprised how few people around the table seemed to get the, uh, when various name- names came up, that there was that light bulb moment for them of, oh, so that's what we're dealing with, are we? Ah, so I guess you can't, as the author of the scenario, you can't rely too heavily on people knowing the story itself, the, the Call of Cthulhu. 
Well, no, that, that's good for me because it then suddenly means that they're, they're approaching it with fresh eyes and not have any preconceptions about it. So no, I was really happy how it went down. Nice. Sure thing. And Scott, you've not been idle either. Been recording with How We Roll podcast. Yes, following on from the recording we did of Blackwater Creek a little while back, they've invited me back to do something a bit more ambitious this time. They've got a new group together and we're going to run through the entirety of The Two-Headed Serpent. We had our Session Zero last night, where we created the characters and recorded all that and did a bit of brainstorming. Now we're just looking for a slot in the next week or so to record the first few episodes. I don't know exactly when this will be going out. It may go out before this episode, probably not. I shall share a link, make it available in the show notes if it's out by then. If not, I'll share it on social media afterwards. Mm. On a scale of one to death ray, how much pulpified do you think it's going to get? I'd say about 0.6 to 0.7 death rays. Oh, good, good. Mm-hmm. What does the scale of death rays go up to? Well, like any good dial, it always goes up to 11. And also this Discord thing. We have a, uh, a platform on, on Discord, right, to uh, discuss various matters, and you've been discussing, Scott. Yeah, we had a, well, not quite impromptu, but a fairly informal discussion a couple of weeks back on Discord. We chatted about how to write and structure Call of Cthulhu scenarios. And, and was this... Actual voice discussion or typing discussion? This was voice discussion. Right, yeah, yeah. The way Discord works, you've got this text chat channel that's going the whole time, but you can set up voice channels as well. And so that's what we did. I mean, we organised things a bit with the text channel, first of all, and then we jumped onto this voice chat and just chatted for a couple of hours. Unfortunately, it didn't occur to me at the time to record it, but I've since found out how you can record stuff on Discord. So if we do stuff like this again, and it looks like we might next month, then with everyone's permission, then I can record that and and make it available. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And this week, our word of the week is... Inconceivable! It's an adjective. One, impossible to comprehend or grasp fully. Two, so unlikely or surprising as to have been thought impossible. Unbelievable. But I'm fairly sure there should be a third entry here saying this word doesn't mean what you think it means. (laughs) Uh, You know, Paul and I were chatting... Well, you said, can we get through this without Princess Bride references? And I said, yes. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. No. And, no. I, and, and I pointed out that we were recording with Matt and yeah. it would be inevitable. I was speaking only for myself. <laughs> yes. Paul being the one person on the planet who doesn't like the Princess Bride. I'm sure I'm not the only one. Y- yes, you are. I wouldn't say I don't like it. I'd just say I'm not that bothered. Yeah, but you're wrong, Paul. You oh, I'm are wrong about many things. Objectively wrong. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it's, it's just a, a fact, Scott. Anyway, going back to the Lovecraftian aspect of this word. Like some of the others we've discussed, I think this is a fairly simple adjective compared to a lot of Lovecraft's more Baroque ones. But another one that gets to the heart of what the mythos really should be about. I don't know about you two, but I really struggle with sometimes when writing Call of Cthulhu scenarios, which is this idea that the mythos is ineffable, inconceivable, it is beyond human comprehension. But... You, as a scenario author, have got to try to find explanations to give to the Keeper about why things are happening. And it ends up being very reductive. It ends up anthropomorphising things that should not be possible to anthropomorphise. Yeah, totally. It's a body of knowledge that man was not meant to know. But what is it? 
well, as author of the scenario, I've kind of got to flesh that out a bit. But how do we put something that is inconceivable in the text? Yeah, it's kind of a, a hard one sometimes. So what you're saying is that doing so is inconceivable. It totally is, Scott, yes. On the Lovecraftometer, it appears 23 times in his fiction and three times as inconceivably. That makes me think there should be a crossover between the number 23 and The Princess Bride now. That would be one hell of a film. Yes, yes it would. I think it would be more interesting if you went back to the roots. I mean, forget about the the film, the number 23, and the fact that it was popularised initially in the works of, first of all, of William Burroughs and then Robert Anton Wilson, and get into some of that slightly more, shall we say, colourful content that they produced. <laughs> the 23-fingered man. <laughs> well, actually, that, I mean, that said, I mean, in the Illuminatus books, and particularly in the Schrodinger's Cat trilogy, the, the trilogy that followed Illuminatus, there's an awful lot of Cthulhu mythos references in there, so perhaps it's not that inconceivable. Mm. And now we take a look at how Lovecraft used the word inconceivable in his writings. From the festival. But what frightened me most was that flaming column spouting volcanically from depths profound and inconceivable, casting no shadows as healthy flame should, and coating the nitrous stone above with a nasty, venomous verdigree. And from the dream quest of unknown Kadath, onward unswerving and relentless, and tittering hilariously to watch the chuckling and hysterics into which the siren song of night and the spheres had turned. That eldritch scaly monster bore its helpless rider, hurtling and shooting, cleaving the uttermost rim and spanning the outermost abysses, leaving behind the stars and the realms of matter, and darting meteor-like through stark formlessness, toward those inconceivable, unlighted chambers beyond time, wherein black Azathoth gnaws, shapeless and ravenous amidst the muffled, maddening beat of vile drums and the thin, monotonous whine of accursed flutes. And from the shadow over Innsmouth. Far out beyond the breakwater was the dim, dark line of Devil Reef, and as I glimpsed it I could not help thinking of all the hideous legends I had heard in the last thirty-four hours, Legends which portrayed this ragged rock as a veritable gateway to the realms of unfathomed horror and inconceivable abnormality. And one thing I'd love to pick up on there, I don't know what it is. People refer to it as Devil's Reef. It's not that in the story, it's Devil Reef. So yes, remember that when you're running your Innsmouth scenarios, it's Devil Reef, not Devil's Reef. Well, maybe after they drop the depth charges, it's split in two, so then there's plural. (laughs) And it'd be Devil's Reeves. No, two devils, same reef. Maybe it might join up down the bottom, you never know. Two devils, one reef. (laughs) (laughs) And now on to our main topic, the inspiration and development for writing Call of Cthulhu games. Way back in episode 23, we had an episode which was all about how we write scenarios. It's a topic that has come up a number of times since then in discussions with backers and and listeners on social media. So we thought we'd revisit the topic, but take a slightly different angle this time. And as a platform, we're going to use three scenarios that we have written and published. Two of them are from Nameless Horrors, one by myself and one by Matt here, and one from the Keeper's Screen Pack for Call of Cthulhu by Scott. 
And so, again, spoiler warning. We will be spoiling An Amaranthine Desire and The Moonchild uh, from Nameless Horrors and Blackwater Creek from the Keeper Screen Pack. And also, as a special treat, we have five copies of Nameless Horrors to give away as prizes. Now, these will be given away in a competition which we will talk about at the end of the show. So, we hear you ask, what is Nameless Horrors? Well, it's the first scenario collection for Call of Cthulhu 7th edition. It was written by the three of us, mainly after Scott's big idea. They finally got us writing a book together. And published by Chaosium in 2015, off the back of the successful 7th edition Kickstarter. Six reasons to fear the unknown, an attempt to get away from any familiar entities or other elements previously seen in Call of Cthulhu. I think the mantra pretty much that Scott used was... If it can be killed by dynamite, we don't want it in the scenario. <laughs> <laughs> and also the fact that it was called Nameless Horrors. These were new creations, not relying on things in the old rulebook. You know, monsters that everybody knew. These were all new entities or threats of some kind. So let's kick the discussion off with Blackwater Creek. This is a scenario that, as we said, appears in the Keeper's Screen pack. It's written by Scott Dorwood here. And we're going to explore where the ideas came from, how he developed it through playtesting and so on. So Blackwater Creek is a classic period Call of Cthulhu scenario set in Lovecraft country. May start on the outskirts of Boston and then goes into the dark hills around Dunwich and so on. And there is a, a very rural element to this scenario. Bit of a sandbox. So let's kick it off then, Scott. So where did the idea for Blackwater Creek come from? You and Mike had asked me to write a scenario for the core rulebook for 7th edition. I basically sat down and started spitballing loads of ideas and drew in loads of stuff from notebooks. As it is, I mean, it eventually didn't go into the main rulebook for a variety of reasons. Matt had written a scenario called Amidst the Ancient Trees, which also takes place in a fairly rural setting. And, it, you know, the, the two of them, well, they've got very different content. They, you know, it was the, the thought that they might be a bit too similar in terms of location and structure. But in terms of the basic inspiration, it was all sorts of things. I think, like most writers, I keep notebooks. I mean, some of them are physical books, and some of them are just documents online. Whenever I get ideas, I just write them down. It doesn't matter whether it's a half-formed thing, whether it's just a location or an idea for a character or something a bit more fully formed for a scenario, if an idea pops into my head, I try to write it down before I forget it. And can you remember what that seed of an idea was that gave birth to this scenario? It wasn't one. It was loads of different things, uh, things that I'd written down. For example, oh gosh, about 10 or 12 years ago, I picked up an album, a collection of folk songs called John Barleycorn Reborn, which was all by contemporary folk artists at the time. And it was more the darker side of folk music. It was all really stuff that would feed into what we referred to in a couple of episodes before as folk horror. There was one particular song on there which leapt out, a, a song called Pact by Doug Peters. What I ha ended up writing down in my notebook was very different. It sort of planted the idea in my mind of a farmer sort of making pacts with old gods in a very unwholesome way to try to get more bountiful harvests and what this would mean for the family involved in the farm and how it would change them. This very much became the kernel of Blackwater Creek, even though you know, the ideas that I originally put down and, and certainly what's mentioned in the song bear no resemblance to what actually came out the other end. Well, certainly that which you just described forms a strong element of Blackwater Creek. 
And when I sat down to try to develop ideas, I, that one didn't even occur to me, first of all. I certainly decided I wanted to do something set in a rural community because I like isolation in horror. And initially, I wanted to do something about a sort of some weird lake monster, really. Perhaps people fishing and disappearing on this lake and, and something unwholesome that had been forming that was not like the lake monsters out of tradition that turned out to be something very, very different. And again, this became almost a throwaway bit in Blackwater Creek where there is a dam that's been made at some stage and there's a body of water there and there is something nasty in that water. But it almost became an incidental detail. But what it got in mind for me was the fact that how is this thing forming? That The water is all coming from somewhere, that there is something strange about that water. And that became the important aspect to me as I developed it. Right. The other thing that was in my mind that really sort of crystallised all that was just the word Blackwater. When I first came across the word, I think possibly as a result of the military contractor firm, infamous during the Gulf War, I looked up what Blackwater meant. It was this idea that it referred to bodies of water that were rich in organic particulates. Again, that just sort of struck me as being a very evocative thing. Hmm. Well, the, the phrase itself, I wouldn't have known what it meant, but it, it sounds ominous, as you say. So in the scenario, we see this spring and the, and the water coming from it and feeding the land. And that's, you know, that's how you fed that in there. So it's not about a lake, as you say. This is the root of it. And you chose the Lovecraft country and the period, what, because initially you were thinking about putting it in the core book and that exactly. seemed like a very standard setting? I knew I wanted to do different things with the kind of content and certainly the structure of the scenario than most Call of Cthulhu scenarios that I'd seen. But at the same time, I wanted to try to make it familiar, particularly if it was going in the core rule book that it was going to be a fairly representative scenario in, in other respects for new keepers. It would be the classic period, it would be Lovecraft Country, because this would then set them up for perhaps an ongoing campaign or make it easier to draw in other published works afterwards. So you have this idea, and because ultimately it gets written up and published, but what was the track that it went through from this inception through to the, the final publication? Initially, it was just a question of developing those ideas and turning them into something that I could actually present at the gaming table. At the time, my mother had become very seriously ill. She had Alzheimer's, uh, which eventually killed her. And I was writing this at a time where her Alzheimer's had taken a very nasty turn, where it had become obvious that she was no longer capable of living on her own. Which, I mean, she was living up in rural Scotland, about 350 miles away from where I lived. And it wasn't really possible for me to look after her. And she had a great support network of friends in the area. So I was reluctant to move her down near me. So as a compromise, I tried to find a nursing home not too far away from where she lived. And I was heading up to Scotland oh, about every two weeks at that stage, driving up uh, for long weekends to, for a start, check on her, but also help her move into and then settle into the nursing home. And so I was sitting around, basically, in hotel bars and restaurants, filling time by writing in my notebook and developing all these ideas. Obviously, a lot of stuff about what was upsetting me about the situation with my mother kind of leaked into this. It's something that didn't occur to me how much had until I went back and actually ran it again for the first time in years for the Howie Roll crew a few months ago. Some of the stuff was quite conscious, so, I mean, it was just 
throw away things like names in there. So, you know, one of the characters in there is named Sprouston, right. which is actually the nearest town to where her nursing home was. Okay. But um, you said there was more of an emotional connection in some of these things. So did, yes. how, how did that manifest? Because I'm not quite seeing that. Because a lot of it is about the almost maddening influence of this mother figure in, uh, in Blackwater Creek, the sort of psychic eminences that are coming out from there, the way it's shaping the entire community and changing everything that's there. And at that time, my life was being very much transformed by the fact that I was having to go up and, and deal with these things on a constant basis. I mean, there were other things as well, like you know, a big theme in Blackwater Creek is sort of loss of identity, that people are being subsumed by all this and they're losing who they are. And you know, it wasn't until some time later that you know, I realised how much that was tied in with my fears about Alzheimer's. Mm. And also quite manifest in the fact that you called the effect the mother's gift. Yes. Yes, very much so. So were you not aware of this at the time, do you think, that you no, were putting really. this into the scenario? No, you know, and it kind of surprised me when I went back and read it afterwards because it seemed so you know, obvious a couple of years later. But at the time, I guess it's, it's really interesting from that point of view how much of what's on your mind bleeds into what you're working on on an unconscious basis. And it might be obvious to everyone who reads it who knows anything about you, but you don't necessarily see it at the time. Now, Scott, I've, well, I've worked with both you and Matt, uh, you know, a lot on, on various scenarios and campaigns. And I've worked with a lot of other authors of Call of Cthulhu scenarios as well. And, and I'm very aware that everybody has their own way of developing scenarios. And I think when we work, as most people do, just on our own, and we don't necessarily see how other people do it, we all kind of think our way is, that must be the way everybody does it, right? But you particularly, Scott, I can see that, you work through playtesting yes. to develop ideas. So can you say a bit about how that affected Blackwater Creek and what sure. you had maybe when you came to the first playtest and how different that was? Yeah, I, I think Blackwater Creek was probably quite unusual for one of my scenarios in this respect, in that even though it wasn't written up by the time I had my first playtest, which you two were both part of, it was relatively fully formed. I don't think there's anything in that initial playtest that I ended up jettisoning or changing particularly. I certainly added stuff and I built upon it, but I quite often, when I go through this iterative playtest process, I will find the things that don't work and I'll tear them out or I'll rewrite them or I'll change them. But with the development of Blackwater Creek, it felt very much more like a process of accretion, that I was adding details the whole time. So do you think that's down to the fact that you had all this, as you described, sort of spare time when you were visiting your mother, that you had time to sort of ponder it and sort of think it over and put a lot more forward thought into it before you actually got to the playtesting stage? And I think so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, because I, I did my usual thing for that first playtest of turning up basically with a bunch of bullet points. I had names, I had locations, I had a few things that might happen. I don't think I'd even statted anything. I just sort of improvised everything at the table. Yeah, there were certain certain things which I yeah I had to improvise on the spot, that where you ended up going investigating certain areas I hadn't thought about, and suddenly thought, oh, actually, yeah, that does need to be in there, and so I'd I'd end up writing that up. But for example, there's an archaeological dig site in there. Yeah, I remember that being quite a, a strong aspect. So yeah. I've, I've been on an archaeological dig, so I could really sort of visualise that. I mean, just yeah. in the playtest, that was myself and Matt. I think and Lucy. Lucy. I think were you in that, Matt? That I, I remember vividly the one bit that comes to mind is, We drank what? 
was my uh, was my <laughs> bit, but I, I don't remember the dig site. Oh yeah, I'm just wondering who else was in that. But um, I, I think possibly Edgar, your son. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it could have been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I remember play testing that the first time, and I would agree that I don't think the final product has gone a million miles from what we play tested that first time. There was some. I mean, the one major change that I see that you made was to add an option for a different set of PCs. The original setting was whereby we were members of a Miskatonic university with a few friends perhaps going out to seek a uh, a professor from the university who has mysteriously gone missing, you know, related to this archaeological dig and so on uh, near Blackwater Creek. But then you added another layer to the scenario in which we could play a different set of investigators, those being a team of bootleggers. And that came very much out of expediency, uh, because I do a lot of my playtesting at conventions. What I wanted to do was come up with a version of it that played faster. So the default mode with Blackwater Creek with the uh, the Miskatonic University team, that will probably play out over a few sessions. And that is really too leisurely to fit into a four-hour convention game slot. By introducing a bunch of player characters who were bootleggers, who had basically been sent out to do a particular thing by a local crime boss in Boston... That suddenly made it a lot more focused. The investigators knew where they were going to in the first place. They'd still encounter some of the weirdness, and there was perhaps less reason for them to explore the entire area around there. But they could have a very focused experience that would fit into four hours. And interestingly enough, that's the version that ended up really taking the forefront in the published version, because uh, when it went into the Keeper's Cream pack, it went there alongside Misdues, which was Mike Mason's scenario, which also involved gangsters. So I think for the theme, the the idea was that both of them would be gangster-focused. But in my mind, the gangster option, though it is there now as the default in the published version of Blackwater Creek, that was always an afterthought. Interestingly enough, there was actually a third option which we ended up cutting uh, for reasons of space, which I sort of slightly regret now, which was the idea of having the investigators be locals who just get caught up with this. And, you know, Mm. it it then becomes a much longer uh, process that instead of coming to town and suddenly being hit in the face with all the weirdness, that they're seeing the weirdness slowly growing from the ground up. Yeah, I mean, this is something I'd like to dig into, really. At what point did you decide what the investigators were going to be? I think particularly for one-shots where we are creating pre-generated characters, we're not only creating the player characters, but we're also trying to weave them into the plot. Can you say anything else about that? You know, why you originally chose Miskatonic University investigators? The reason I did that was I thought if this was going to be a Keeper or a group's first Call of Cthulhu scenario, then that would be a very easy in for them. Right. Um, It hadn't occurred to me at that stage to provide pre-generated investigators because, you know, the classic thing with published Call of Cthulhu scenarios, particularly in things like the core book, was that they were there for any group of investigators. And that was specifically what I tried to support with Blackwater Creek. Obviously, for this more convention-focused side of things, and with the pre-gens that went into the published version, this was something a bit more focused. And yes, I mean, those pre-gens were designed to tie in uh, more with the scenario, that all of them had some kind of history or some kind of hook that made some aspect of the, the game personal to them. 
those characters weren't at the core of what I developed, which is actually fairly unusual for me. When I write a convention game, normally the player characters are right at the core of it. But with Blackwater Creek, they were an afterthought. Now, one thing I certainly spend a lot of time doing when it comes to a, um, any scenario, really, that's either grounded in historical fact or it's down in a particular area. And even to some extent, though, this is a fictional locale. There is still a lot of information about Lovecraft Country out there and the likes of the Miskatonic and so forth. What research did you do that helped shape the scenario? Comparatively little. Um, <laughs> Lucky bugger. Yeah. No, th- th- this was one of the most research light scenarios that I've written. I did some basic stuff. For example, you know, I got my copy of the Miskatonic University book that Chaosium published years ago and just made sure that any references I made to the archaeology faculty tied in with what had already been published. Similarly, tried to make sure that what I described as the locale tied in with what had already been published about Lovecraft Country. Let's see, apart from that, there was a little stuff like some of the backstory comes from the conflict between Puritans and Quakers in 17th century America. So I did some little research on that. Some of it involves a tribe of Algonquin people in the area, so I did a little bit of research on the Algonquins and, and their language as well. So the name of the tribe actually derives from the Algonquin term for Black Earth. Um, there was one particular bit of research I did very, very slightly and, and has sort of been contradicted since then. Brett Kramer pointed out that the term Creek probably wouldn't have been used around that time as a place name in Massachusetts. I mean, I did very specifically look around and you know, try to find places in, in Massachusetts with Creek in the name, and there were a few. So I thought, oh, well, that's OK. Brett was fairly adamant about the fact that for the time the settlement evolved that it probably should have been called something like Blackwater Brook. Huh. Would have been a nice bit of alliteration. Mm. Oh, and, and the other bit of research, of course, you helped me on, Paul, which is, having grown up in cities, I knew almost nothing about farm life. <laughs> that did amuse me. We got together because Scott was like, I need to draw some kind of map to give the artists for the book. I offered my services to do a, a sketch map um, I didn't do the one for the book. This is just a, a sketch map to give the yeah. artist. No, um, it was and Stephanie McKelly who, who ended yes. up doing the maps. So Scott was like, what would be in a farmyard? <laughs> I was like, well, isn't that obvious? This would be here, you know, there'd be a muck heap, there'd be the pigsties, there'd be, I don't know, some old workshop and things like that. And yeah, it, it's one of those things that seems plain to me, but... Yeah, yeah, no, it was a, a hidden world to me. And the details that you put in ended up sort of bringing one particular location to life. What was fact, that? Yeah, it was the, the Javi farm. Now, I mean, this is interesting. I mean, talking about the idea of this being a process of accretion, yeah, that, that was a detail that I threw in pretty much at the last minute. There's the idea that the investigators will probably come to Blackwater Creek fairly late in the day and they'll need somewhere to stay overnight. And so I thought, oh, yeah, it it would be nice to detail a local farm where they can stay. I used a lot of the details that that you put together about, you know, to flesh out this farm where they'd be staying. And I, I thought at the same time, oh, it'd be really useful if something interesting happened there rather than them just turning up, staying overnight, picking up a couple of bits of information. And so I, I scripted a fairly nasty scene that happens overnight there. And this was, I think, the last thing I wrote for this. This was not something that had ever gone into any version of the game that I'd ever run. But it was something that I thought, in retrospect, really needed to be there. And when I ended up running it again for the How We Roll crew, that ended up being one of my favourite parts to run. Hmm. So looking back on it now, Scott, 
are you happy with the final scenario? Is there anything you kind of regret that you didn't put in or would like to have changed? You know, it's there in black and white now. Yeah, I, I am, I think, very happy with it on the whole. I think it's one of the more successful scenarios I've written. I think it's one of the best developed that I've written. I think possibly because it was developed over such a long period of time, had so many iterations and playtests and so many third-party playtests, that I think it really got knocked into shape by that process. I would strongly agree. I mean, I've run it several times at conventions, and I think it's a very strong scenario that you buy the Keeper screen... Um, you're not going to go wrong with that. It's pretty easy for the players to get into what they're doing. It's fairly sandboxy for the GM. Yeah, it's a good one. Oh, thank you. Okay, let's put the spotlight on you, Matt. Oh, boy. So which scenario are you going to talk about? I was going to have a look at an amaranthine desire. Okay, well, let's start with the, the basic one, which is what made you want to write this scenario? What, what planted the seed in your mind? There's that good quote that necessity is the mother of invention and that borders of a canvas help inspire what then fills it. It was literally that line you gave us of we don't want a monster that can be destroyed by dynamite. The threat here can't be just killed. It has to be something else. I tried to approach it from, all right, what can't you kill? And ultimately settled on, I want a story about a place. I want the place to be there's something inherently wrong about this area that actually the environment is the main thing that the PCs are up against. And that, that is essentially where it came from. And you chose to set the story in Dunwich. Oh, that, that came a long way down the line. Oh, but, I thought that had come first. Oh, hell no. That was a long, long way down the line before ah, I finally set it Okay, there. well, we'll come to that in a minute, because it's not quite what some listeners might be thinking. Yeah. Um, well, apart but, from anything else, it's probably Dunwich, not Dunwich. It is Dunwich. It? Well, yeah. so is Dunwich, though, isn't it? No, Dun- Dunwich, Dunwich is Dunwich, and Dunwich is well, Dunwich. Well, is it, though? Many people debate and never that, the but let's not go. According not go to the locals, according to the documentaries, according to all the things I found at their local museum, it is Dunwich. Dunwich, yeah. yeah. So you say that came later. So what mm-hmm. came first? So you were looking for, you were thinking a place is something that people can't fight and kill. Mm-hmm. So where did you go from that thought? My, my first thought, actually, was Brigadoon. Um, I wanted to do a scenario about a place that wasn't always there or that was somewhere else. A place that, in theory, you could meet anywhere. One of the things I've tried to do in a lot of uh, more recent scenarios is have them set it anywhere they can be. But I wanted this to be a very much a Lego piece that you could put into an ongoing campaign and have it be anywhere that you want as long as it was on a shoreline. So thinking of this mythos-esque Brigadoon and that this place was um, somewhere that the investigators could just stumble into at any point without realising at first just how weird it was. How does this place come and go then? Well, again, this was something that I tried to think of various ways that it could manifest. Maybe it was a certain time. Maybe it was the, almost like a harking back to relay that it ro- uh, rose up out of the ocean at certain points. Thinking of various sunken towns and cities along the, the east coast of Norfolk and Suffolk, for instance, or even down the, the whole east coast of England where the... The North Sea is basically eating away at the landscape year on year. I think it was actually an old sci-fi miniseries that ITV ran quite a long time ago about a sunken town which had really stuck in my head. Um, someone went down and found all the buildings were still um, they're still there. And, that, for instance, the, the church had a pile of bodies stuck in it. I think that, that, was, that was probably an image that was stuck in my head when I was trying to think of this. But it was thinking then, right, I've got this town, but what's odd about it? So that, that kernel of an idea is going on one end, but I'm thinking I have to have some kind of scenario seed as to what's going on there that would interest investigators when they got there. 
And obviously there were other things that you brought into the mixer. You, you ended up, uh, I think, using quite a lot of elements from M.R. James, didn't you? Well, um, elements that James had utilised from Norfolk folklore. Okay. But was your primary inspiration there James, or was it the original folklore? It was the folklore that he had taken. One of the main echoes and main homages in there is the James story, A Warning to the Curious, which you have a ghost that is guarding one of the last remaining three crowns of the old Saxon kings of England. And that while these crowns remain on English shore, that the, the kingdom of East Anglia will be free from invasion. And which, yeah, there are elements of a ghost, so there is my little homage to that. But it was mainly the idea of these three crowns and what they represented and who they were from that was one of the more core elements of what is going on in the town. So I, I ended up doing a fair bit of digging online, trying to find out any information I could about these three crowns. And James had done a lot of it for me in the story, but there were still a few more bits that I found. That's where Dunwich came in. Right, so that led you to the location. Yeah, because one of the three locations where these crowns were supposed to be was saying that one had fallen into the sea along with an old English port. And then, again, doing a bit more digging into which port it was, finally Dunwich was mentioned. So we're talking about Dunwich on the English coast over to the east uh, side. It's in Suffolk, yeah. Of which it was, long, long time ago, one of the largest ports in England, but then was wiped out by a storm in the, the early 14th century. And thought, okay, this this is something I can work with. I don't particularly want to do a historical Cthulhu scenario, but I don't mind taking current investigators and dropping them into a historical setting. I like the kind of the aspect of being out of time, for one thing. So, what's the more modern setting? Originally, I wanted to set it in the um, in the seventeenth century or the seventeenth or eighteenth century, around the more traditional period of bootlegging that went on that eastern shore. As part of my research, I went to the town of what was left of the village of Dunwich and went along to their museum. And I think I pumped the poor guy behind the counter for as much information as, he, as I could get out of him. And one of the displays they have upstairs, they have a long list of bits of local folklore and things that used to go on in the area. It mentions smuggling was quite prevalent around there at the time. And also about the now famous legend about the bell in the church. Mm. There is supposedly a bell that the fishermen, as they go out to sea, will occasionally, when the weather's strong enough they will hear the bell tolling below the ocean. Dagon's bell. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Mr Lumley. One of 100% um, less Lumley here. <laughs> so, um, so did a lot of that actually feed directly into the scenario? Oh. I mean, was it just colour, or did a lot of that actually sort of affect the scenario, so to speak? No, d- directly. Um, yeah. it, gave me the, um, it gave me the physical makeup of the town, because I was able to find maps of the, um, of the town that existed. found obviously the background history that then Scott cut completely out of the, uh, the manuscript. When he <laughs> ruthless editing, yeah. ruthless oh, editing. Gosh. Yeah, uh, let, let's step back for a moment here. The original manuscript that you presented for this was, I think, about fifteen to 20,000 words over word count. A big part of this was that you had fundamentally written a source book for Dunwich. It was great stuff. I mean, th- there's plenty of very useful things in there. And I think at some stage, you, you should probably you know, hide that bit off and, and find something else to do with it. Maybe we can put it in the Blasphemous Tome. Mm, yeah. Maybe. Um, or, or the uh, the Sanderson Country Collection. <laughs> <laughs> it was a hard thing for me as an editor going through that because I liked the material. But at the same time, you know, I could look at that first 10, 15,000 words or however much it was mm. and think... Does any of this make any difference to running the rest of the scenario? If we cut all this out and just summarise it as a few bullet points, will the rest of the scenario suffer as a result? And the hard answer was no. No, I completely agree. It's it's something that was interesting. There are some keepers out there, I think, that would benefit from having such a wide and comprehensive background to the area to try and bring it to life as much as they could do. 
But for economy of actually getting the book out, then no, that, that was the one thing I had to go on the chopping block first, which is probably my one regret, is that I would have liked to have seen it in there, but can see why it didn't end up in. When this was eventually published, it was published as a gaslight scenario, effectively. Yes, it was. But obviously with a few twists in that most of it doesn't actually take place in the 1890s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted it to be more along the... Um, kind of line of traditional smuggling stories that it fit more with the time period then because there was a lot more smuggling that took place. It still happened into the Gaslight era, but just not to the same extent, and it felt a little bit out of time. When we were again approached Chaosium to put the selection together and the feedback came back, they said, well, it'd be nice to have like two modern, two yeah. classic era, and two Gaslight scenarios. The one you've got set in the 17th, 18th century is a little bit out from that. So that's why it was rewritten. And I can sort of understand that because it's perhaps a period that people don't know as well. And Matt, how did you go about playtesting it and did it have a big impact on the final scenario? Did it change much through that process? Uh, the main thing it changed were the PCs, because they are very much separate from the main story that's going on. It could be almost any group that dropped themselves into that and then tried to work their way back out again. Right, so you created pre-gens because that's what we were doing for all the scenarios in the book, but yeah. they're really not essential for this scenario? The main thing about them is it's not their backgrounds, it's their motivations. And it was some of their motivations that changed in the course of playtesting. When you find out what is going on in the town and what you need to do to potentially get out, what do you do? And why do you do what you're doing? And that was the main crux, the rewrites that came from playtesting, is seeing what players did with these different motivations, how they approached it over multiple iterations, and seeing, okay, this works, this maybe needs a tweak, this doesn't work, rip it out entirely, put something else new in. And then it was literally just the PCs were the main things that changed. The rest of what was happening in the town, the rest of the structure of events they saw, that was all fine. Apart from one throwaway comment, I think, that Paul Lawrence made, actually, on uh, uh, one of the playtests that he did, which was about the, about the owl that's in the, um, in the scenario, as a familiar of uh, some of the characters, that uh, the NPCs that they meet yeah, there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, owls don't screech when they swoop down over prey. They do it silently, so it's almost like this ghostly um, thing flying out of the dark and then back up again. So I was <laughs> thinking a, a good stereotypical screech of a bird, and he went, no, no, they're, they're, they're quiet. Which okay, makes right. sense, because, yeah, you don't want to scare the, the mouse away while it's swooping in on it. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Okay, that's factual accuracy being put in there. <laughs> I'm sure that's not a fact that's ever affected anything that's ever happened in Hollywood films or anything like that, though. No, nope, not at all. <laughs> so the scenario is there in black and white in Nameless Horrors, and is there anything you regret, or are you quite happy with it as it is? There was one comment that someone did, not sure if it was in a, rev- a review online but or whether they made a comment about it, that kind of stuck with me a little bit, which hadn't really cropped up when I was running it in playtesting, is that the end could, in different hands, be a bit of a damp squib, that the investigators just fade into nothing, which, to be honest... I haven't got a problem with that. Um, again, one of the main images for me there was actually from a film that Scott introduced me to, just called Darkness. Oh, yes. Where it has one of the bleakest endings where the characters just drive off into this dark tunnel, and that's it. That's the end. They're gone. They are right. part of the black. Again, that stuck with me when I was writing this up. I saw it as more of a kind of low-key dark ending. That it was, yeah, you just become nothing. There's no screaming, there's no blood splatter, there's no gore. It's just you fade away and are oblivion. So would you just like to have explained that, perhaps a paragraph, just sort of, you know, yeah, that's a, a quite an acceptable ending? Yeah, just to justify it a bit more hmm. and to help keep us 
give a bit more description to that. But saying that this, this isn't an ending that you're going to go out on a bang, this is potentially an ending where it's just going to fade to black, literally. Paul. Yes, Matt. The Moonchild. Yes, Matt. I had some experiences running this that we'll get along to a bit later. Ah, well, first, yes. of all, first of all, <laughs> I, I had some experiences of you as a player in it, Matt, which I'll get to later as well. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember that now. Yes. <laughs> Does it smell like chloroform to you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because th- this was another one, wasn't it, where the first playtest involved the three of us? No. No? No. The first playtest was myself running it, yourself, Scott, Lucy, my wife, and Edgar and Emily, my kids. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, at the cottage many years ago. Oh, gosh. Proper Fricker family game. It was, <laughs> which is kind of bizarre, uh, given <laughs> yeah. the, the context of the game. But, I was about to say. Um, yeah, this was a scenario that I needed to have a scenario to run at Gen Con 2013 because there was the Kickstarter for 7th edition. And as part of that Kickstarter, myself and Mike Mason were going out to Indianapolis and offering to run a game for backers of the Kickstarter. What was your particular inspiration for the kind of subject matter you tackled in this? I decided I wanted to run a fairly mundane family setting. And I think with this, I was influenced by Realm of Shadows, the pagan publishing campaign, which starts off with a very small town domestic problem of a missing person. Any mythos mysteries, you don't find that until you've peeled away a few layers. Also, somewhat influenced by Lampposts in Bloom, Scott, a scenario of yours, which, again, starts a barbecue, family and friends, and it's very easy to buy into as a player. But the actual idea for the the situations, this idea had been in my mind for a number of years because it happened to a friend of Lucy's that when we were in our early 20s, this friend of hers learned that her father had another family. And this was totally unknown to her and her brother. Her younger brother, I think, had just turned 18 and the father chose that time to tell them. So the father had got another partner and a couple of children by another mother that he kept you know while he was away on business or whatever and it just really was like pulling the the rug out from beneath your feet you know Mm. to suddenly find you know not only as my father having an affair with another woman but i've got two siblings yeah that, that always kind of really intrigued me well it's an unpleasant thing but to be in it but that that just surprise of having the rug pulled out from under your feet so i wanted to sort of try and take that as some inspiration so the father in the game has a child that the rest of the family don't know about and in the first iteration this child has been conceived by occult means and it has some strange powers before you move on from there was that aspect of things just a logical development from your original idea or did that influence that idea come from somewhere else and it was emerging of a couple of streams no i think that was just that idea that there was something strange about the other family the other child just seemed to come out of that that seemed to be an obvious progression to me Then I kind of extrapolated from that. So this child, it's got strange powers, so it's being kept locked up somewhere, studied or something like that. But of course, it's it's got out now and it's coming back to haunt them. So it's seen in the proximity of the family's home. And for the other players, it's an unknown threat, but the father would recognise it. 
Uh, and this was a fairly kind of loose scenario that I'd got. I think the only other bit of scenario that I'd really got was that there were some spooky people that were also trying to track this kid. And of course, unbeknownst to the players, the spooky crew that are trying to catch this kid are kind of like your regular Call of Cthulhu investigators who have found out about this kid with the cult powers and they're trying to catch it, right? But from the player's point of view, they're, you know, shadowy individuals who are trying to interfere. I mean, through playing that first version, it, I found myself playing the weird occult child as somewhat sympathetic. That didn't necessarily remain the case. No, I was going to say, from when we playtested it, I remember it being somewhat significantly less human. Well, that was the second playtest that I did at the Milton Keynes Role Playing Games Club. I transformed it because I wasn't that happy with the first playtest. So I took it that those shadowy figures that I referred to were actually the, the investigators and the, the family were the subject of the investigation, yeah. really. Mm -hmm. Was it always your intention then from the outset to make this a modern-day scenario? Did you choose to sort of set it on home turf as a way of making it personal, or was that just a, a default idea for you? That tends to be my default, to be honest. I've always, when I've created scenarios... My default has always been just set it somewhere familiar to me and in the modern day. This seemed very much to fit that mould. So there wasn't anything specific about you know, Northampton and Milton Keynes that defined this scenario in any way for you? As it went on, my mode of introducing the player characters to each other was to speak to the players and say, OK, well, your player character, you've just been contacted by some old friends on Facebook that you haven't thought of for, like, a decade or two. And, you know, they've invited you to meet up. And thinking about it again, mm -hmm. this is kind of a moment in time that isn't really going to ever occur again. because And we were witness to this because there was no Facebook or social media for a long time, and we lost track of all those people that we were at school with. Oh, yes. And then in our 30s and 40s, suddenly they started to pop up and say, yeah. oh, hi, you know, I haven't seen... And like, oh, I just about remember who you are. But, you know, we must meet up and, and all this. But now, people leaving school, they're all on various forms of social media and they're never going to get that experience of suddenly being hit with that in their 30s or 40s. So as a modern thing, that seemed to lend itself and tie in well with a modern city like Milton Keynes. Uh, well, I say modern, you know, it's 50 years old now, but relatively modern. And Northampton, I used Northampton College because I did my art foundation course in Northampton. So I just plugged into that. And there was this strange occult shop called the Occultique oh, at yes. the end of my street, which I used to frequent. That I did have to do a bit of research <laughs> on that a little bit, sort of looking up to see if it was still running. And, and uh, Yeah, no, it closed down a few years ago. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yes, yeah. I used to vaguely know John, the guy who ran it, and yeah, oh God, it was a lovely place. Yeah, so, you know, incorporated that. More so than I do in many of my scenarios, I suppose this was set on, you know, real places that I knew. I think that's the only time I'll ever hear anyone say the words lovely place in connection with Northampton in the same sentence. Yeah, there's not a lot of <laughs> yeah. lovely place in Northampton. It's, uh, I, sorry, people in Northampton. but I, I, I live just outside it now, and I'm glad there's that two miles of greenbelt between, <laughs> between yeah. me and the rest of the town. It's no Bletchley. <laughs> <laughs> For which they are eternally grateful. <laughs> okay, you said it changed an awful lot between the first playtest and subsequent playtests. Was there anything particular that happened during the first playtest that made you think that, oh, yeah, I've got to completely change this? Or Yeah, I think the initial playtest with the family player characters, 
I really went out of my comfort zone with that one and ran a really loose scenario as a play test, and that's not something I, I usually do. I found the initial player characters of the family were really lacking direction and motivation, and it was also sort of hard to drive the action towards them. And with the research aspect of it, I mean, obviously, you know, from what you've said about the location, you didn't really have to do much research there. But when it came to the occult aspects of it, did you just make stuff up or did you you do any research and try to ground it in any uh, occult traditions? Um, That's a hard one to recall. I mean, one more thing about the setting was I very much sort of phrased it such that, you know, you could set this where you went to college in your local town it's not really going to make any difference to the scenario so if you're familiar with wherever then just set it there it'll be fine in terms of the occult i read up a little bit because there is a phenomena known as a moon child you know a child created under sort of mystical magical rites i I I think i actually suggested yeah yeah you suggested that that scott yeah yeah I suggested the name to you, but what you'd come up with just fitted what I knew about yeah, children. Yeah, so I looked up a little bit about that and about a few occult things, but I'm not sure they, they heavily fed into it. It was kind of rooted in the mythos, and I added a bit of colour to that, really. Because, I mean, obviously there, there's a book by Alistair Crowley called The Moon Child, so that, that wasn't any kind of influence then. The title? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I have to give a shout out to Matt here in uh, in the second play test at Milton Keynes Role Playing Club, Games Club. I think you created your own PCs, but they were this this group of old university students that knew each other. And Matt just uttered one question, which changed the whole game, which was, "Do I know anywhere I can get some rohypnol?" <laughs> <laughs> was this before or after you started playing? <laughs> yes. So. Next time, well, actually, it didn't ruin the game, but no, I, uh, it I, did mean that interrogating NPCs was quite a lot easier. That was my main objective, <laughs> is that I like to be that guy who basically screws with the structure or difficulty of a scenario. That What happens if all the NPCs give us all the information we want? So I went around and I gave every PC we met Rohypnol in various different ways. So basically, Matt, you are the reason for Lines and Veils discussions. Now that feeds into a great response I had from when I playtested this. I playtested this up at a gathering up north with various friends that we got together pretty much to just specifically do playtests of the scenarios in the in the collection. There's a particular issue that comes up in the scenario that when one of the players, we got to the end of the scenario, he said, just to give you the key bit of feedback from me, if I was at a convention game and this happened, I would get up from the table and walk away. And that particular topic is paedophilia. Right, it's not on screen, but it is very heavily implied with some of the evidence you found. Now, I've had this in games where I've touched upon subjects that can be a bit triggery, and it's led to some adverse reaction at the table. How did you deal with that when I gave you that piece of feedback? I think I made it a lot more open to the keeper's interpretation what was going on there, and also flagged it up in the introductory text to the keeper. It's not a major part of the game, but it's kind of implied that the father who's had this occult child has got other stepchildren and is having some sort of relationship or there's some exploitation of like a maybe 15 16 year old girl going on that is his kind of stepdaughter that was in there so it's very much up to the keeper and whether they want to sort of incorporate that yeah, so, so it's not a key plot point, but it's something that, that sort of feeds into the larger themes. Yeah, it builds the image of this character as very undesirable. Um, and also the whole the sort of dysfunctional nature of that 
relationship that, that, that he has. And also, it's a driver for why the mother of this stepdaughter is going to the PCs and trying to get their help. She won't say that's why. She makes up some other reason. But that's her reason for coming to the PCs, because she knows that her her daughter is under threat from this man. This then opens up a larger question, which we may have touched on when we did our Extremes episode, which is, when you're developing a scenario like this, is there a part of your mind that ever sits there and thinks, am I going too far? Is this suitable for the audience? Or is it more important to you just to try to capture the vision that you've got in mind there and then worry about that stuff afterwards? I'm probably more the latter, yeah. Um, Same. I'd moderate it afterwards or I'd put in advice to the reader to moderate it. But I felt that it made it a more powerful scenario. It's kind of unpleasant Mm. and it could be omitted if the user wanted to. I suppose the important thing is it doesn't feel gratuitous or salacious. No, I hope not. It's supposed to be very unpleasant. Yep, it is. Yeah, it was also done in such a way that it was almost off-screen in a sense that you yeah. you saw evidence yeah. of it, but you yeah. weren't obviously seeing the the full act. Yeah, yeah, you kind of the players had to put the pieces together in their own minds really to, yeah. to realise that it was going on. Yeah. Was there anything else that during the development process or playtesting process really changed for you? Obviously, the focus of who the PCs were was the big thing. Was there anything else that you sort of discovered or changed or dropped or included as a result of your playtesting process? The one thing that sort of came at me was try and tie the player characters more strongly into the plot. And as I was writing it, I'm building on what I've got, what I've play-tested and so on this time, certainly. And I really wanted to try and weave it all together a bit tighter and tie the pre-generated characters. I wanted to tie those more strongly into it. And it occurred to me that they could all have been friends at university in a occult society which was a bit tongue-in-cheek perhaps for some of them, but actually that this did have an impact that the players wouldn't realise at the offset of the game, but they are are somehow all tied in with this moon child and that it has some power over them. When I thought of that, that that really spurred me on in the writing because it was like a realisation for me that way of linking everything together such that whatever the players did, I could bring the horror to them. And one of the ways that they can avoid this horror is to remove the taint from themselves. Yes. Um, That that did lead to one of the more interesting illustrations in the book. Yes, which my friend John Wyke illustrated. Uh, He he, uh, put a post on Facebook one day saying, I've just done an illustration of somebody cutting their arm off. And I can see, if you look in the book at that illustration... I'm pretty sure that is a self-portrait because that looks a lot like John um, feverishly cutting his arm off with a wood saw, which I presume he didn't actually do for the art. Otherwise, how would he have drawn the image? But um, with the yeah. other hand, huh? With the other hand, or yeah. Pencil obviously. between his teeth, yeah. yeah. So that, that's an image I cherish. And that that idea of cutting your arm off—I don't know if that had been in my head because of watching 127 hours. And also that old Who Dares Wins sketch from the 1980s. There was a farmer who had his arm pulled off in a farming accident down the fields on a baler. And the farmer picked up his arm 
and walked to the farm and called the ambulance and and, and so on. Uh, and there's this 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 comedy sketch on Channel Four show when uh, you know the farmer's walking back to the pub and he meets somebody and he's got his arm and his other hand and they're like, "You come in for a pint?" And he's like, "No, I tore me bloody arm off." Oh, go on, just a quick one. <laughs> 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 and it just proceeds and he leaves his arm in the pub and so on. And uh, that was kind of in the back of my mind. I don't know why. But So, as with all this, it's now in black and white. Are you pleased with the final product? Yeah, I think I am. I think it's maybe a bit complicated, you know, in execution. It's not a particularly straightforward one to pick up. I think there's quite a lot of interwoven things going on. So I hope I've communicated it clearly in the writing I think in terms of the presentation of it in the book, I just struggled a lot with trying to present it in a way that the keeper could digest and understand. There's backstory, there's backstory for each of the player characters, there's the locations and so on. And it is hard putting that together in a format that is easily comprehensible by somebody who's coming to it for the first time, I think. And, and also who can use it as a reference at the table if they need it. Yeah, that's a really difficult balance to strike. Thanks to cut and paste, it gets chopped around and, and changed and reshaped, you know, the same thing again yeah. and again to really try and get that as, as, clear, as, as clear as one can. Yeah, I mean, just to go into a technical aspect of, of writing these things and developing them, just to compare notes with the two of you. When I'm doing stuff like this, there's a technique that some novelists use, which is called the snowflake technique, where basically you, you start out with, um, you know, the very high level stuff, you know, a one line description of your book, and then you break it down into one line descriptions of each chapter, and then you break it down into descriptions of each scene and and spread out from there. And it's it's like a fractal growth. I do something similar when writing scenarios in that I start out from an outline, a structure, you know, headers, bullet points, and, and I'll sort of fill those in, shuffle them around and so on. So it's almost a very visual way of developing them at first, you know, a very high level look, and then sort of filling in the details as I need. Is that sort of the, similar to the way you do it, or do you tend to see it much more as a, a kind of block of text, as a, as a flow no, I wouldn't say as a block of text as a flow, and I wouldn't say as organised as, as perhaps what you described. I think I get bits down and then hack away at it, really, just chopping things and, and you know shuffling them around and slowly bash it into a, an order that makes sense for that particular scenario. Mm. How about you, Matt? Uh, this actually kind of resembles a conversation I had with Jonathan Powell at Contingency. Um, he had a look at some of my notes that I'd written down for a... Um, scenario that probably not for publication i'm not sure if it will be or not but just having a look at how i structured things and i generally try to follow a similar format that i go with background so what's happening before events of a scenario have played out a timeline so i've got an idea of when what's happened at what particular date a list of all the npcs their backgrounds their motivations etc and then go straight into events so the key scenes that will happen in the course of um, the course of play in and i in a rough order that I think they may come up in. Now, I'm not to say that it's, it's railroaded, that this will happen, then this will happen, then this will happen, but normally that yeah. something will occur before something else, which in turn there might be something in between them, kind of the rough chronology as I see things evolving at the table. And as a reader, when I read that, it would kind of make a story sense to me. Even yeah. if I shuffle it around a bit when I play it, it will kind of make sense to me as a reader. Yeah, right? yeah you, you, don't have to play, you don't have to go A, B, C, D. You might go A, C, F etc skipping bits along the way but they'll all follow in a similar order 
But when you go through the development process, is that pretty much the order you write them in as well? Yeah, I, I write to a framework. I know I know what works for me, and it, it gives me a good degree of structure and comfort if I have that framework there. That, again, it means I can lay it out in such a way that I know the reader is going to be more familiar with it and generally find it helpful and practical. Well then, Paul, is there anything that you'd change about this now? You've obviously talked a little bit about some of the feedback you've got, but with the reception it's had and with the passage of time, is there anything that you'd you'd add, remove, change now? I think I was very happy with it as a scenario. I feel that somebody could take it, if they've read it and understood it, you know, it should stand up to some uh, kicking around. And that's what I like in a scenario, is that I can read it and I can think, yeah, I could run that. And I hope that people get that feeling when they read it too. I hope it stands up on its own. So, no, there's nothing that I know of that I would change. The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. Once again, it is time to offer thanks. Thank you to each and every one of you who have backed us via Patreon. The money you give us makes all this possible. It fuels the podcast, it keeps us running, it keeps our website running, it keeps the RSS feed running, and it buys us the occasional new bit of equipment, and it is wonderful. So, thank you, thank you, thank you. And we have a few new people to thank. Well, we have two new people to thank. Both... At the hallowed level of $5, this means more singing. Hallelujah. Yes, brothers, let us sing to the praises of. First on the list today is Randy Keeling. Thank you very much, Randy. Yes, thank you, Randy. And we hope this pleases you. Keeling, Randy. And our next victim is Curtis Y. Takahashi. I hope I'm pronouncing that right for you, Curtis. But yeah, thank you very much and brace yourself. Thank you, Curtis. Thank you very much, Curtis. And enjoy. Curtis Y. 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 And also, we have some feedback about our episode on the Stone Tape, which came out, well, seems like a long time ago now, back on Boxing Day last year. This from Linus Larson on Google+. Cheers for introducing me to this wonderful film. The climactic encounter felt very alien indeed. When our heroine encounters the two glowing lights in the corridor, I immediately thought of them as eyes. 
As one of them then moved independently of the other, my mind went to the swaying of high stalks, genuinely creeping me out. And yeah, I think that was a particularly creepy scene. We did touch upon the fact that perhaps some aspects of this film haven't aged very well. And prior to re-watching it, I had had this thought in my mind that the visual effects particularly wouldn't have aged well in the slightest. But I I don't know, watching it, I found stuff like that surprisingly effective. Yeah, I think also the fact that you've been watching it for an hour, so you're kind of immersed in that level of it. Actually, as special effects go for that film, that's quite a decent one, I think. Works quite well. I think it's also the fact that, perhaps with more recent films, as CGI has got better and better, we look at films from the 1990s now, and we can see films that were perhaps quite impressive then for their CGI are now looking a bit old and creaky because technology has got so much better. But stuff like this, where the effects are very simple, where they are just, you know, lights being shone, those are fairly timeless. Hmm. And over on Facebook, Lee Williams has to say, Very much enjoyed this episode, being a Neil fan. The idea of using technology to investigate and analyse strange goings-on ties into many of the other games I enjoy, including my favourite non-Mythos RPG, Dark Conspiracy. It's one of those games I've always heard about but never seen anyone run it. Hmm. Lee is a big fan of it, and Proto Dimension used to be partly dedicated to to Dark Conspiracy, didn't it? Yes, and now the Dark Times fanzine is, is very much so as well. And Lee particularly mentions Nigel Neal there. One thing that you know, I've suggested to the others that we might do is an episode all about Nigel Neal. Obviously, we've touched on him you know, when we talked about the stone tape and beasts a long time ago, and, and even in the folk horror episode. If you think that there is enough interesting material to be said about Nigel Neal, please let us know, and that might help sway the balance. And also on Google+, Tor Nielsen has this to say. The X-Files episode... Hollywood AD uses the idea of sound captured in clay. Specifically, the words of Christ have been captured in the Lazarus Bowl, which has powers of resurrection, it seems. It's one of the deliberately camp episodes, but very fun to watch. Well, those camp episodes were always actually my favourite episodes of The X-Files. I think The X-Files was always at its strongest when it did not take itself seriously. The very serious and earnest and increasingly incoherent main mythology episodes following the alien invasion and and all the conspiracy surrounding that i found increasingly missable increasingly hard for us to take seriously yeah but when they let themselves go with stuff like this or the postmodern prometheus or you know some of the other particularly in the later series quite wacky episodes uh, they sang but this idea of Christ's word in particular being captured in clay, as I mentioned in the, in the, the Stone Tape episode, I heard in a Radio 4 play, and I think you mentioned was incorporated in another story. So this is obviously a theme that quite a few people have uh, been attracted to. Well, I think it's this whole idea that you know, we've got records from olden times of you know, certainly oral traditions and, you know, and some written traditions. But the idea that we can never directly experience those old times the way that we can more modern things through photography and audio recordings and video recordings, transcending that in some way, providing some audio gateway into times before we consider recording feasible is quite a powerful thing. Uh, yeah, it seems quite sad that we don't have any recordings of H.P. Lovecraft's voice, you know, on wax yeah. cylinder or, or whatever. Well, speaking of recordings, remember that competition we mentioned earlier? Well, here it is. Right, folks, we're keeping good on our word. We mentioned it earlier, and here it is. To enter, 
Please share our post about this episode on Twitter, Facebook or G+, and feel free to notify us that you have done so. We'll pick five names at random, each of whom will win a copy of Nameless Horrors. And we will inscribe this book in any way you please. If you want it personally dedicated, we will happily dedicate it. If you want it just signed to make it easier to sell on eBay, we can do that too. And if you want us to leave our greasy mitts off it and not reduce the value of the book, we understand. And the cutoff for entries will be the 10th of March 2018. Let's wrap up with some final thoughts on inspiration and development of Call of Cthulhu scenarios. Well, the question I'd ask to both of you is, what would be your one top tip to anyone developing a Call of Cthulhu scenario? It's kind of twofold from me. One, playtest the shit out of it and don't be afraid for it to look nothing like what you originally envisioned when you started writing it, because it will change, and almost always for the better. I'd say don't leave the player characters till last. Give thought to how the player characters tie in to the scenario. It may be that it's going to be for your group, in which case tie them in. It may be that they're just going to create their own player characters and play your scenario. But, you know, there needs to be a way of hooking them in. Hook them in and then just give them enough line to go hang themselves. My top tip isn't specific to scenario writing, it's just for writing in general, which is keep a notebook, or keep lots of notebooks. Keep documents, uh, electronic documents, however works for you. But all those weird little ideas you get, those bits of information you come across that might be inspiration later on, strange dreams you have, things you overhear, places that you encounter that interest you, make notes of these things. Periodically go back and take a look at them, particularly if you've got something you want to work on and you're stuck for ideas. Edward de Bono, who was the man who coined the phrase lateral thinking, was a great advocate of the synthesis of ideas, of taking disparate ideas, things that weren't related, and just looking at the way they could possibly intersect. And certainly sometimes when I'm stuck for ideas, I will just go through my old notebooks of some of these random things and think, right, you know, this thing here, this thing from here. If I tried to put them together in the same scenario, what the hell would they look like? Most of the time, that leads to nothing. But every now and then, it pays off. Well, we hope that you are inspired to develop something. And uh, until next time, it's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com You broke it. What the fuck? You broke the spoon. You broke the fucking spoon. I've had that 25 years. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> I can't help feeling that like this is some kind of low, very low budget holy mountain going on. <laughs> yeah. You would have to be naked though.